So in our class this morning, we're coming back to the book of Romans, and we've been in the third chapter of the book of Romans. This once a time, I thought this chapter was pretty simple, clear-cut, easy to understand in all of its fullness, and then I began to read just the reality that Bible-believing scholars um, look upon this passage with um, considerable measures of... Um, of a diversity of understanding and opinion on uh, a good many matters. Um, and so there really does need to be some measure of explanation, particularly of the various terms that Paul uses. Almost every one of them uh, has a majority report and a minority report. Uh, people who have said one thing uh, through the years, maybe it's been understood in a, in a certain way, and the others have said, well, actually, when you look a little bit more closely at what the language means, and perhaps the Old Testament background to what the language is saying, maybe something a little bit different is to be seen. And um, so you have phrases like righteousness of God. We have that uh, from. Um, from chapter one, it's uh, come up to repeat, uh, uh, to be repeated in uh, chapter uh, three. In fact, it's in the theme part of the of the letter in chapter one, uh, where Paul first addressed this question of the righteousness of God. It's in one seventeen, where Paul says in sixteen, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it that is the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it." And it's in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith uh, for faith, or from faith to faith. Uh, there's again, there's questions as to what exactly that Habakkuk, uh, that reference to Habakkuk means in Paul, as it is written, the quotation from Habakkuk 2, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, and the whole question of righteousness of God is something that we mentioned in prior studies, that righteousness can either be uh, something that is part of divine nature. God is a righteous God. The righteous God loves righteousness, we're told in the Psalms. And, um, but it's also that God is not only a righteous God, but that he gives righteousness to us who come to believe in his name, that sometimes it's a gift, the gift of righteousness that, Paul, that God gives to those who have no righteousness of their own. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. And so, in some cases, righteousness of God is speaking of the quality of divine righteousness, what is resident in God's own character as one of his divine attributes. And in some cases, it's the gift of righteousness that he gives us in the gospel through the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in this third chapter, um, it seems like you got a, a blending of the uh, those two ideas right in the midst of, oh, like four or five verses. For uh, uh, We're told that this righteousness of God that is uh, apart from the law, though witnessed to by the law and the prophets, this righteousness of God in verse 22 that's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Um, he goes on to say that this uh, revelation of righteousness, or this righteousness that's been, he said, that, that has been uh, revealed uh, or manifested, um, that's through faith in Christ, is so that God's righteousness would be shown. Look at it in verse 25. It says, Whom God put forward, that is Jesus, he put forward as a propitiation by his blood, we'll talk about that this morning, to be received by faith. And he says, this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness. And that's clearly a quality in God. That God dealt with Old Testament saints in a certain way. And you might have scratched your head and said, But Lord, how could you judge Sodom and Gomorrah the way that you did? Or how can you judge Egypt and uh, Pharaoh the way that you did and let these uh, Israeli sinners go go scot-free? Or how do you forgive them? Well, God passed over their sins, we're told. God did not impute their sins to them. He didn't charge them with sin. Psalm 32, blessed is the man whose sins are not... um, Um, whose sins are covered blesses the one to whom the Lord will not impute sin God did not impute sin to these people he passed over in his forbearance and this was to show his righteousness in the former times when he passed over sin what does that mean? well it's the fact that sin ultimately is punished sin ultimately is paid for by Jesus now, Jesus came in time. Jesus came after the Old Testament saints had lived and died. And during their life and uh, after their death, they were treated as God's children, brought into God's presence, brought to know God's face in, 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 um, in joy and in delight. How does God do that? Well, because Jesus comes and he's the one who is the propitiation through faith in his blood. He's the one who pays the price. So you have the righteous God acting righteously, in the way he gives righteousness unto all who believe in the name of his Son. So the gift of righteousness is given from the heart and mind and will uh, of a righteous God, who in the conferring of righteousness upon his people through Jesus, shows himself to be righteous in the forgiveness of sins. That God could be a just God, and we want the judge who administers justice in the courts, we want him to administer it rightly, don't we? We don't want him to pervert justice or to take a bribe or to do things that are wrong to uh, free innocent people that should be punished and to punish, I'm sorry, to punish innocent people that should be freed and to free uh, guilty people who should be punished. But uh, yet it seems like lots of sinners get forgiven. How do they get forgiven? Well, Jesus came and the price was paid. So God is the righteous righteous judge who does righteously he's both the, he's both just himself and yet he's the justifier he's the one who gives the gift of righteousness to the one who has faith in Jesus so you know whatever you make about these phrases one thing is clear that this salvation we have in the new covenant is a salvation that is in Jesus and that is received by faith in Jesus that we believe to be receiving the benefits of this salvation, to be receiving the blessings of this salvation, to be receiving the gift of grace, the gift of life, the gift of acceptance with God, the gift of righteousness that God gives. He gives it to believers. And whatever you make about these things in a technical sense, how you nail it down with absolute accuracy, um, if you come up in the side, uh, to the, uh, in the side where you, you're just magnifying Jesus and you're magnifying faith, that receives Jesus, um, we're on the right track in understanding Paul's words, even if we get a few of the details a little bit off kilter. Um, and that's a nice thing about Bible study is you, know, you want to get it fine-tuned. You want to see it in a clearer and clearer way. You know, we used to live in a, a house in um, uh, Leonia, New Jersey, where we didn't have cable. The cable, I don't think, existed at the time. Um, and we would get maybe the major stations in New York, but it would all be fuzzy because they went and they put up these high rises in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and you know wherever the uh, the 
the Empire State Building, I guess, where they put the antennas up that were beaming out the signals from the TV stations. It would just get interrupted by those big high-rises they put up in Fort Lee. So we're sitting in our house in New Jersey, and what are we seeing? We're seeing fuzzy television all the time. And you had those old TV sets, you had what was called a flying tuner, and you're always trying to get the picture just a little bit more clear. I always told a story about how we were watching the very, very famous movie that Orson Welles did in 1939 called Citizen Kane. And Citizen Kane is, I'm sorry? 41. 41? 41 or 42, it's not 39. It's not 39 when all those great movies came out? No. Citizen, okay, I was associated with all those great movies that came out in 39. 41, thank you, thank you, Mike. 42. Okay, so it was later. Later than Gone with the Wind, later than The Wizard of Oz, later than all those 39 movies, that's fine. Anyway, um, that has, you know, the whole end of, the whole movie's about trying to find out what this guy Charles Foster Kane meant on his deathbed when he said Rosebud. And so, I mean, I knew that was what the story was about because I was, I saw the Peanuts cartoon where uh, Lucy, I guess is uh, Linus, is he's the guy with the blanket? Linus, or is that Schroeder? Our, our... Linus is the guy with the blanket. Lucy is her okay. big yeah, Yes, Lucy's the big sister. Anyway, Lucy Van Pelt, even her last name. <laughs> anyway, so Lucy sees uh, Linus uh, watching Citizen Kane. And uh, uh, she shouts out, Rosebud's the sled! <laughs> So I kind of knew what the end would be. The rosebud was the sled. But I'm watching it for the first time. And I'm watching it on our television with all the fuzzy snow. Uh, And we're trying to get the fine-tuning going. And we're basically successful watching most of the movie, except the final scene when stuff was getting thrown into a furnace and I guess the sled was thrown into the furnace and we couldn't quite make out what it was on the television. A great disappointment. But anyway, most of the time we were able to watch things and with some measure of clarity of understanding of the things that we were seeing, but you're always trying to get it clearer, the picture clearer. And that's how Bible study should be. That we have the basic outline of the truth of God in his word, that's clear in the gospel, and every Christian sees it, understands it, believes it, is saved by it. But yet there's the things that are uh, need fine-tuning, need constant adjustment, coming back to Scripture again and again and again to see it a little bit clearer. And um, so we do this in the book of Romans as well, and looking at this very famous section where Paul speaks about this righteousness of God, this gift of righteousness that the righteous God gives to people who believe. And he tells us it's been manifested, first of all, apart from the law, and yet it's witnessed to by the law. The law and the prophets bear witness to it because it's, the, the, it's God's promise. God has promised through the law and the prophets that he would send the one who would, who would bruise the head, the head of the serpent. He's promised again and again and again that he would send um, the son of David who would be the king and who would rule. He promised uh, that uh, through uh, uh, the seed of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He, he promised, uh, in the words of Abraham, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. He promised the servant who would come and suffer for sin. This is all promissory. And God comes in the Old Testament through the law and the prophets to bear witness to what God would do. And now God has done it. And hence, it's manifested. It's made manifest 
what God had promised, now he has made manifest. This righteousness of God has come in time, come in the person of Jesus, come through the things that Jesus has done. This righteousness of God that comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ and comes to all who believe. Now, one, another one of this uh, matters of uh, controversy I mean, you want to write them down? Well, you write down the phrase righteousness of God. It's one we always need to be considering and understanding. What does it mean in the given context in which it's given? Look to get fine-tuning on what Scripture teaches concerning the righteousness of God. Um, But then there's also this matter of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you might think on the surface, not much controversy there. We just believe in Christ. We trust Christ. We look to Christ. We follow Christ. We receive Christ. All those words that the Gospel of John uses that speak of faith in Christ. But, but ordinarily, when this matter of faith in Christ is spoken of, it uses the various words in Scripture that are um, translated faith. It's the Greek word pistos, pistos, and that family of words that speak of faith or speak of believing. Sometimes it's translated believing. And then it is faith, and it usually uses a preposition that speaks of a relationship to Jesus Christ. Uh, Sometimes it's uh, a Greek preposition, en, which means just in, into something. Sometimes it means ice, which is uh, even further into something. It's directing us to Jesus, coming in Jesus, to be incorporated into Jesus, to be participants into the Lord Jesus by faith. so it's just more than a, 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 just a mental exercise. It's, it's our lives being wrapped up in Him. It's our whole, our whole persons coming into a union and a communion and a fellowship with His whole, whole person. Uh, again, one of the uh, one of the pictures that is, is, is given is is marriage. That Jesus is the bridegroom who comes to receive His bride. And uh, we come to faith in Jesus that's like um, coming into a marriage relationship where it's uh, a union that's com- that, that um, exists. And there's all that language in the New Testament that speaks of being in Christ, it being in union with Jesus, participating in Him in a relationship of loving intimacy and, and fellowship and commitment and service that's all um, bringing us in, in, into Christ um, but there's a, a, a form here in the Greek that's a little bit different when the name of Jesus Christ is used here um, because it has um, well it has one preposition which is the preposition dia which basically is uh, through faith, and then it has uh, the normal preposition, but it has Jesus Christos, which is the Greek for Jesus Christ. It has uh, Jesus Christ, and I'm being, we're being joined by my wife now, so we're going to admit her to the Zoom, um, so she can join us on Zoom. And then it has what's called a genitive case that the name Jesus Christ is in. Uh, again, I hate to give language lessons to people who have never studied Greek before, 
But in the Greek language, when you have a noun, every noun has a case, and the case that it's in tells us something about the noun. And one of the cases is called the genitive case. And not to get too complex about the matter, when something like Jesus Christos is put into the genesis, the genitive case, Jesus Christu is how it would be. It would be just different than just a normal way a noun would be used. It's it's defining something of a relationship, a relationship between uh, Jesus and faith. And there's two ways it could go. It could be that we have faith that is into Jesus in the genitive, which is making Jesus um, the subject of the statement or the object of the statement. Let's call the objective genitive and the subjective genitive. Don't go to sleep on me, please, please, please. This can make sense in a minute. An objective genitive would say faith through faith in Jesus is a construction in which Jesus is the object of our faith. He's the one we look to and we believe in. Um, A subjective genitive would make Jesus the subject of the faith. So in other words, it would be the faith of Jesus. The faith that Jesus himself exercised. His own Obedience to his father, his own faithfulness, we might say. And there are those who look at this passage in Romans chapter 3 and say maybe it ought to be a subjective genitive in which Jesus is the one who's exercising the faith. And that the statement should be understood that the righteousness of God that comes to us through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who believe. Our faith is in the latter part of that. For all who believe, that's our faith. Our part of it is all who believe. We believe. But what do we believe in? We believe in the Jesus who is faithful to death, the death of the cross. Who's obedient to death, the death of the cross. The Jesus who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, who reigns for us, is that Jesus that we believe in in the light of what we sometimes call his doings and his dying. What Jesus did and how Jesus died for us, um, that provides the basis of our salvation. And so some people would look at that and say, well, it's the faithfulness of Jesus. It's the um, subjective genitive of which Jesus is the subject of the faith. He's the faithful one. He's the pioneer of our salvation. He has led the way through his own life of obedience. We follow him. We follow his example. We follow him to glory. We follow him so that where he is, we will be. Uh, even as he prayed in the, in the prayer of John 17. And so they would say that to see it just as an objective genitive, you have kind of a repetitive thought. And this is how they would say it. I'm, I'm telling you all this because I'm reading a book on this subject. Um, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, um, he did his doctoral dissertation on this very subject of whether this is an objective or a subjective genitive. And I haven't finished his book, and it'll be probably a long while, because it's a very, very big book. But, uh, and he hasn't persuaded me yet, but it's an interesting uh, thing. And I just want to present this to you, because you see, there's lots of ways to take what Scripture says. And, um, and, so, and, and, and we ought to be hearing what people say they think Scripture might be saying, but yet to do it discerningly. 
not just receiving gullibly everything that someone says, but you know, look and consider it, and then exercise wisdom, exercise discernment with respect to it. And so, if if we were to say say that it's our faith, um, these folks would say that this righteousness of God in verse twenty two of Romans three, Romans three twenty two, this righteousness of God through faith in Jesus, where Jesus is the object of our faith. It has then a repetition for all who believe. Wait a minute, he's already said that. Uh, he's already said through, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Why would he add for all who believe? That would be a repetitive thing, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? Well, probably not in the light of Romans chapter 3. Because what Paul is looking to do is he's looking to level all under sin and all being justified in Jesus um, again, the, the point of it, there is no distinction. In the context, there's no distinction between Jews and Gentiles in the church. This Bible thing, this covenant thing that once was only Jewish in the Old Testament, now includes the Gentiles, includes the nations. The nations are being brought in to faith. And that caused some problems in the New Testament church there was a party that was going around telling people you had to be circumcised, you got to keep the law of Moses or you can't be saved, you can't be a Christian unless you become a Jew first and of course the, 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 Paul's position was no, no we're received by God through faith in Jesus Christ, we are accepted and received and he argues in this letter we're all, we're all leveled in sin no one can say uh, I'm less a sinner than someone else we're all under sin we're all guilty. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And no one can say we're saved in a different way. None of us can say we're saved on a different basis. No one, none, none of us can say, look at me. Uh, I, I'm saved because I'm cut of different cloth than everybody else. No, I'm a sinner like everybody else. And we're justified. In the same way, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Paul's statement of for all who believe, is again just to emphasize it's not only that we have righteousness, the righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ, that's how it happens, but now he underscores that this righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ is not just for Jews, it's it's not for Gentiles alone, it's for all who believe, that's the point. The point is the universality of this way of salvation. And so, you know, I rather think that what we're looking at here is, is not the subjective genitive, although I don't, I don't think that's containing bad ideas. It's true that we're, we're saved by the faithful Jesus, by the Jesus who is faithful to his Father, who carried out his mission in full obedience to the will of his Father. Um, but I think in this passage, we're really talking about the believer believing the believer believing the believer receiving righteousness the righteousness, this gift of righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ through our, through our believing in Jesus and that means everybody that means everybody in the church for all who believe and then he says for there's no distinction for there's no distinction all have sinned fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're all equally culpable in sin, guilty in sin, separated from God through sin, 
all the realities that beset and afflict a fallen world were true of each of us in sin. And yet God's mercy came to us in our sin. And now in Jesus Christ, we are all justified. Every one of us who believe are justified. And then he uses expressions with respect to this matter of justification. And I probably should say, I don't think how I've underscored it enough at this point, that this matter of justification is simply what God declares about us. It's God the judge making a declaration concerning us. And this is the great thing that happens when we come to faith in Christ. Even though we don't hear it with our ears, we don't hear a verdict that comes forth from heaven where God the judge says when we come to faith in Jesus, justified, not guilty, forgiven, righteous in my sight. And that justification means all that. It means we've been forgiven of our sin. It means we are seen by God as if we've obeyed his laws and not broken them. We're seen as righteous in his sight. We don't hear it with our ears, but yet, nonetheless, it's been declared. Remember how Jesus says there's joy in the presence of the angels of God in every sinner that repents. We don't hear that joy, do we? But we're informed by a very good authority that in the heavenly places there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. God has said, this my son who was, well, who was dead is now alive. This one who was distant and far from me is now drawn near. He's now received. He's now accepted. He now has all the rights of the family once again. All the rights of the home, of, uh, of God's family, of God's acceptance, of God's forgiveness. That's what it means to be justified. Forgiven of all of our sins and regarded by God as if we're wholly righteous, completely righteous, nothing in us that is offensive or guilt-worthy, no condemnation, as Paul concludes uh, his argument in Romans 8, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and no separation from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We're justified. And this justification comes to us by His grace. This is favor, we see. We didn't earn it. We don't merit it. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work it out on our own. This is gift. This is gift. Comes to us from the hand of God as gift. And then this justification by grace is a gift. Uh, I think I mentioned last week that the word uh, freely is a word that actually is translated in John 16 without a cause. Without a cause. When Jesus said, They hated me without a cause. Uh, Jesus said, they hated me freely. I didn't give me any reason to hate me. They hated me. They hated me because they had hateful hearts. That's why they hated me. And then we look at ourselves and we say, well, why, did, why does God love me? Why does God receive me? Why does God forgive me? Again, the answer is without a cause. No, nothing, in, nothing we've done. Everything in him, everything in his own heart, his own immense heart of love and compassion, has received us freely by grace as a gift. Can't get much clearer than that. Freely as a gift by grace. How, how could we ever think it's anything to do with us? <laughs> freely as a gift by grace. And then he says this free 
Justification by grace as a gift comes to us, again, not through what we've done, but what through Christ has done. It's come to us through what Christ has done. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption is also an interesting concept. Um, when you're given something of a, an offer, there's a coupon that you can go and redeem. <laughs> redeem it at the market and you can get some benefit uh, as the price of redemption. Well, you got to bring the, the coupon and in order to get credit for the offer. Um, and somebody pays for it. Somebody's paying the market for the fact you're walking out with their product for free. I got a couple of, um, of um, coupons that were sent to me by Coca-Cola. I was in the mall and I was uh, looking to get a Coke one day. And I put in, put in my money, two bucks, two bucks for a Coke. Unbelievable. Put in my two bucks for the Coke. I, pre- I wanted the Diet Coke, so I pressed B2, where the Diet Cokes were in that section, and nothing happens. Nothing happens. And I uh, began to look around and try to figure out what's got wrong with the machine. And, and I noticed that that little uh, you know, place where the, where the bottle usually drops, and it usually has a little door that swings open and shut, that, that was open. It, it never shut. So something was wrong with that, and that's why the machine wasn't working. So uh, eventually I got a hold of a Coca-Cola representative and I told them what had occurred. And they sent me these things. Um, all for good for one 16, 20, or 24-ounce bottle of Coca-Cola. And uh, it speaks in the language of redemption. It's not redeemable in liquor, I'm told. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's redeemed, redeemable in, in places that carry Coca-Cola. And when I go in and I put this down and I get the, the bottle of Coke and say, oh, it's free. Free, f- free grace has been given to me. I got a gift by free grace. Look at that. I got a gift by free grace. I, I didn't pay for it. Got it freely. Got it as a gift. But you know, somebody's paying for it. And you know who's paying for it? The Coca-Cola Bottling Company of Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> They're going to pay for it. I'm getting it free, but someone has to pay for it, right? Price of redemption. Coca-Cola is going to pay the price of redemption for my soda when I walk out with a 16, 18, or 20 ounce bottle of Coca-Cola. See the picture? We're freely justified, freely as a gift of God's grace. But that doesn't mean nobody pays for it. There's a price that is to be paid. And, And that's what the word redemption means. Redemption means deliverance through the payment of a price. There needs to be the payment of a ransom price for the captives to be freed. In the Old Testament, there's God's ownership of the firstborn. God says, everything that first comes out of the womb belongs to me. The firstborn of man or beast belongs to God. 
And what do you do? You have a firstborn son, firstborn child. What do you offer up that child and sacrifice to God? Well, I mean, maybe in pagan religions, but not in Israel's religion. There was the redemption that the people of Israel made for the firstborn by taking an animal out of their flocks or out of their herds and offering it up in, as a burnt offering. And that paid the price for the redemption of the firstborn child. Again, it's the picture of the payment of a price. Jesus pays the price for our redemption in the death that he dies upon the cross for us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Of course, the great Old Testament picture of redemption is redemption from Egyptian bondage. The people of Israel that were held captive and in slavery by the Egyptians, God comes and he redeems them. He redeems them with a high hand and with a mighty arm and he leads them out and he brings them to himself. See, the end of that redemption was to bring a people to himself, to bring a people into a covenant relationship with him. The redemption that Christ gives us is not just, well, I I got forgiveness for you, so that's a gift and go go your way, you know, live a happy life and, uh, you know, I wish you well. Wish you wish you much success in life. You know, check in with me from time to time. No, God doesn't say that. God says I've redeemed you to bring you to myself, not to set you free to go do what you want. To bring you to myself is the idea. Uh, Peter picks up on this in the book of First Peter when he speaks about Jesus dying, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He might bring us to God. The whole end of Christian redemption is to be brought to God. Just like Israel was redeemed from Egyptian bondage and brought to Mount Sinai where they met with God. And God entered into a relationship with them of covenant loyalty and commitment. I am a God to you. You are my people. That's what God does through Jesus' death. It's nothing less than that. It's not just offering us you know, forgiveness and, you know, live your life, go in peace. No, it's come to me. It's come to me. It's not going in peace. It's come to me. It's draw near to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus says, and I will give you rest. Come to me is what faith involves. Believing in the redemption that is in Christ is coming to him, the God who redeems us to himself. But that's an interesting thing, this whole matter of, of redemption. is clearly redemption um, that's in Christ. Christ is the Redeemer. Christ is the one who brings this redemption about. But again, the, the, the parallel is the, is the redemption of the people of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And um, you know, it's interesting, we've been doing this here in Romans 3, uh, Sunday mornings, and we've been doing Hebrews 2 in um, Wednesday night. And again, it's a little bit different language, but the idea is the same of uh, Christ redeeming us. Um, but it, it's presented in a language that is, is, is in and of itself a little bit hard to understand. Um, let me just look at that passage with you just briefly, and then I'll, I'll get to what I want to tell you about it. But so I made a bit of a discovery this week that helps to tie things together, and I want to share this with you. <laughs> it's always funny when you teach something from God's word and you think God's given you a little bit of insight into something and so I think I see these this like I never saw it before and then no sooner 
do you do that, that the next week you're reading something else in a different place in the Bible and you say, hey, that fits in perfectly that fits in perfectly you know that's, that's the, the problem is we have all these pieces of the puzzle we have all the pieces of the, of the Bible puzzle if you've ever done you know, jigsaw puzzles you put up the pieces on the table and you're looking to put the pieces together but a lot of times you don't know what the box top looks like, where everything is supposed to go, where all the different colors go, and what part of the puzzle it goes. And then again, this whole matter of the fine-tuning of the picture is really coming to see what the box of the cover looks like, what the, what the picture is uh, that God's portraying in his word. Well, I think I saw a little bit more of the picture. Because here in uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews, um, the writer of the Hebrews says that, uh, since therefore the children, that is the children, who Jesus does not ashamed to call them brethren, the sons and the daughters that he brings to glory earlier on in chapter 2, since they share in flesh and blood, they're human beings, he himself partook of the same things, that is our, our humanity, true human body, true, true reasonable human soul, that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And that's really interesting language and it's language that as I try to point out Wednesday night we wouldn't normally associate with redemption in Jesus. It's just not the terminology that Paul uses. But yet it's terminology that's clearly Old Testament because the picture is the freeing of the slaves. Just as Israel was a slave in Egypt, um, and they were brought out of slavery. They were subject to slavery all their lifetime. They were in bondage. They were in slavery. They were in servitude. And God came in his redemption, and he brought them out. But you know, the real question, and I remember a course I took in, in school back in the day, where the teacher was trying to speak about this whole matter of redemption being the payment of a ransom price, and he understood, well, the Old Testament speaks about the, um, the deliverance from Egypt is redemption. So what's the ransom price? What's the ransom price that brought Israel out of Egyptian bondage? And he offered the opinion back then and there's something that I heard in the center. I think I told this to Kevin. Kevin said, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. That the ransom price was the power of God. God expends his power in order to bring Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Because it says, with a high hand, with a mighty arm, I bring you out of Egyptian bondage. So what's the ransom price? The divine power bringing them out of Egyptian bondage. But there's a different picture that's given here. In Hebrews 2, he says, But Jesus partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Well, if the backdrop of this is redemption from Egyptian bondage, the bringing out of the slaves, that's where the picture is coming from. Jesus has come to bring the new exodus. He's come to bring the true redemption, of which Israel's redemption from Egyptian bondage was a picture. It was a type, a shadow of New Testament salvation. If that's what we have here, and I think that's what we do, again, does Satan really have the power of death? Does Satan really come to take our lives from us when we die? Is that given to Satan? No. Satan doesn't have the power of death. 
He's appointed unto man once to die. And after this comes judgment. God's in the place of the appointment of, 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 of death, the time of our death. Our times are in his hand. And yet the devil in his working in the world. And remember, the devil doesn't work in the world just with his new, you know, just coming and, hi, I'm the devil and I'm here to cause a lot of trouble. He works through his emissaries. He works through those who are his servants, those who are his children. And part of what God, what Satan does in his working in the world is he works through the power of human empire to bring into slavery and oppression and bondage and to bring death upon all of his opponents and his enemies. He has the power to wage war. He has the power to execute transgressors. He has the power to go thumbs up, thumbs down. Pharaoh had that kind of power. He had the power of death. And in the Old Testament, his power of death was such that he could say to the midwives, kill the Hebrew children. He had the power of death. Moses had to flee because Pharaoh had the power of death. He fled into Midian because the Pharaoh knew what he'd done and he knew the Pharaoh was out to kill him. The Pharaoh had the power of death. What did God do? To redeem the slaves from Egyptian bondage, he destroyed him who had the power of death. He destroyed Pharaoh, didn't he? And he did it through death. Through death. The death of the firstborn. Firstborn of all the sons of Israel, of, uh, in Egypt. All, all, everything that opened the womb. was to, Israel was his firstborn son. Pharaoh wouldn't let him go. Pharaoh wanted to put their firstborn or their children to death. God takes the lives of the firstborn and he says, finally, okay, get out of here. Get out of here. And of course, they go out into the wilderness. They're about to come to the, the waters of the, of the sea. And what happens? Pharaoh has a change of mind, sends out his armies after them, coming hard upon them with their chariots. They're in fear of their lives, saying, what do we never did this in the beginning? We just stayed in Egypt. Better, than that, better to do that, to be slaves and to die here in the wilderness. And remember, God says through Moses, be still and see the salvation of God. What does God do? He opens up the sea. The people go through on dry land. What happens to Pharaoh's armies? They're, they perish through death. Through death. The horse and the rider he cast into the sea. The song of Moses. God's mighty act of destruction of Egyptian power and Egyptian bondage destroying him who had the power of death over his people. He destroyed him through death. Through the death of the firstborn. Through the death of the army. And he liberated, delivered, redeemed those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Why am I going over that? I did it Wednesday night. I think I did it in a Sunday school a few weeks back. Well, because I came upon something that I wanted to share. It's in Isaiah chapter 43. It's in that whole picture that we're given of redemption from Egypt and the fact that God destroyed the nation. In chapter 43 in Isaiah, this is my reading through the, God's word this week. I, I, came across, I came across this. Again, you have the language of redemption and you have exactly what God did to redeem his people from Egyptian bondage here. Again, the backdrop here is the people of Israel are now being comforted because though they've been in cap- captives in Babylon, this is during the Babylonian captivity, God's going to bring his people back. They're going to be restored. He's going to deal with them now in ways of comfort, in ways of grace, beginning in chapter 40. He says here in chapter 43, But now thus says Yahweh, He who created you, 
O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, he's the one who made them a nation, who constituted them a nation. Fear not, for I've redeemed you. God made them a nation when he redeemed them from Egyptian captivity and Egyptian bondage. I've called you by name, you are mine. You belong to me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Now, again, it's likely he has in mind here stuff that's contemporary, going through the Euphrates as they came back home, although he didn't open the sea. God says, when you come back to your land, I will be with you, whatever happens. Going through rivers. Just like I was with Israel at the Red Sea. I opened up the rivers. I opened up the waters to redeem you. To bring you to myself. The rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I'm the one who redeemed you. I created you. I made you a nation. I did this through redemption, through bringing you through the sea, bringing you to myself. Look <laughs> at the next words. I give Egypt as your ransom. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you. People in exchange for your life. God pays a price of redemption in the blood of the Egyptians. It's not in his power. But it's in the blood of the Egyptians. It's that in the death that these people died because God has a love for his people that he's going to make them a people distinct from all the peoples of the earth. And though those other nations belong to him by reason of creation, in the sense that God made them nations also, right? None of those nations have that place of distinction and honor. These were the oppressors. These are the oppressor nations. These are the nations that put them into bondage. These are the nations that put them to death. These are the nations that oppressed and dishonored them and dishonored their God. These, this, these were idolatrous nations. These are nations worthy of death. And God says it's a ransom. It's a price I'm paying for your salvation, for your redemption, that, to bring you out of bondage and to bring you to myself. So just as God did that in bringing death to the nations of Egypt, and interesting, Seba and Cush. Uh, Cush uh, is Ethiopia. And at the time of the Babylonian captivity, which is the time that Isaiah is referring to here, the Cushites really ran the show in Egypt. Uh, I forgot the name. It was the 25th or 28th dynasty. I don't remember which. It was one of the Egyptian dynasties. It was actually a Cushite dynasty. The, uh, if you look at the map and you'll see Ethiopia to the south. They had come north. They had taken over in, uh, in Egypt. And so that's why I think Isaiah, God through Isaiah is speaking about Cush. I give um, um, Egypt for your, your ransom and Cush. And uh, Seba was the son of, uh, of Cush when you look at the genealogies in the book of Genesis. So it's all northern African places where the people of Israel were held in captivity. And God says, I'm giving them up as a ransom to bring you to myself. And uh, again, it's a picture of what God does in Jesus. Again, these nations deserved to die. Jesus didn't deserve to die. But Jesus willingly sacrifices himself for our redemption. He willingly, voluntarily, gives his life a ransom for many. A ransom, right? That's what 
Matthew 20 and verse 28 says, The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And the pinnacle act of his servitude is he gave his life a ransom. Again, to pay the price for our sins and to bring us back to God. To be the redemption price. To bring us out of guilt into grace. To bring us out of wrath into forgiveness, into love, into nearness. Bring us from distance to where we can come to God and worship Him. That's what the redemption that is in Christ Jesus involves. And Paul goes on and uses another big word in the word in verse 25, and we're not going to get to it this morning. Uh, again, hopefully we'll have the, some folks back with us next week, and I think it's an important concept to spend a little time talking about these important Bible words like justification, like redemption, and here we have another one, propitiation. And uh, God willing, we'll look at that um, next week. Look at verse 25 over the course of the next week and think about it, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. You know, this was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance passed over former sins, Old Testament people's sins, to show his righteousness now at the present time that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, it's a condensed argument. It's, it's filled with deep thoughts. And again, not every one of God's people are all on the same line understanding the whole of it but I hope we've done a little bit to fine tune the picture just a little bit this morning Doris did you have something you wanted to say Martin Luther yeah yeah he, he had conference on himself about faith and about his belief before all the rituals and then God reveals one time it's only by faith. Mm-hmm. It's not by things to do. Right. Right. And rituals right. That, uh, the, uh, that the church used to have when he was a uh, uh, priest. Right. Right. That was was Luther. Yes. Yes. Of course, Luther is the one who said that justification by faith is the standing or falling article of a church. And but you know, it's interesting. Uh, You know, I think justification by faith is mightily important to understand our identity in Christ. To understand how none of us get saved any other way but by faith in Christ. And again, it's not by rituals, it's not by works of righteousness that we ourselves have done. It's God, by God's mercy that he saves us. Um, but yet, you know, there's there's all kinds of truths in Scripture that are, are, are central and important and that touch upon justification and branch out from justification. And, you know, there's been times in the history of the church that justification hasn't been well understood and, you know, the point is not do we, do, we, do we really understand the mechanism, how justification by faith works, or do you believe? That's really the key issue. Is that, I tried to point out that last week, is that it's, it's faith in Christ that brings us justification, even if you don't understand it, or even if you don't know that you're justified, <laughs> even if you don't take any pleasure in the thought, I'm righteous in God's sight. It's a wonderful thing to be able to say that and know that. But there are some believers who, you know, they, they, they're not clear on it. Again, it's, they, get, they got the picture, but it's a little fuzzy on some of these points. It's interesting to know that Luther said 
the central things are other things also besides justification by faith he, had, he wrote a book um, against uh, uh, something that Erasmus wrote on the, on the freedom of the will and he called it the bondage of the will it's different in German or in Latin that he wrote it in but um, he said you alone Erasmus know what the issue is between Roman Catholicism and the Protestant Reformation. And in that point, it was the matter of really the fall and sin and the will and servitude to sin and such that he said is, is the central thing. Again, um, you know, lots of things are really crucial to the clarity of the picture. But there's only one thing necessary for the picture, even in it's fuzziness to still be there. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. That's looking to Jesus, having faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus. It's, it's not our theological understanding that saves us. It's Jesus that saves us. He's the Redeemer. He provided the redemption. He's the propitiation. He's done the work. And um, again, it's how we look to Him and trust in Him and believe in Him that brings all the blessings of salvation to us. So, you know, we owe a lot to Martin Luther's insights and understandings, and we appreciate what the Reformation has brought, it, brought to us, and we're children of that whole movement of the, of the Spirit of God. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I think of this thing that's going on in Asbury Seminary. We're running out of time, but um, in all the things I read on the... Uh, I paid no attention to it as far as going online to see exactly what's going on there. I know Asbury Seminary has had, or college has had like 25 of those through the years. <laughs> I mean, that's part of the Methodist movement to have uh, that kind of a revival. And um, uh, last time they had a major one was in 1970. And, um, and again, I think that God does wonderful things in people's lives through that sense of his nearness and breaking us for, in the face of our sin, restoring relationships and love and, and all the rest. But there's all these people that are just saying, oh, if Roman Catholics are involved, it can't be of God. One guy came on my feed on Facebook this morning and said, if Roman Catholics are involved, Satan's in control. All right. I mean, my wife went to surgery in a Roman Catholic hospital, and I didn't... Satan in control? I hope not. A lot of people I know that went to Catholic universities, I hope that say, I don't know, I don't know what to make of a statement like that, except it's pretty harsh and, and I think well wide of the mark. Whatever you want to say about our disagreements with Catholicism, it's hard to go to that sort of extreme. And some say, well, women are involved and they're up there praying and they're giving their test. Women shouldn't be doing that. It can't be of God. And then other people are just using, looking to use it for their own purposes. And the only thing I'll say about something like this is, is Jesus the centerpiece of it? Is he the centerpiece of it? Not all your arguments with Roman Catholicism and your arguments of the place of women in the church or your arguments of what the culture of America should be looking like or who should be our political leaders and all kinds of people looking to exploit that in order to further their ends, their, their interests. And I say, where is Jesus in the midst of that? You know, I have lots of comments on that theme. It's one of the nice things about YouTube is you get to see the supposed revivals of the church really up close and 
you know, you got a lot of R. Roberts stuff, you got a lot of Wigglesworth stuff, you got a lot of, I don't remember what the people were that uh, led some of these things, and you can really look at it and evaluate it, and you ask yourself the question, where's Jesus in the midst of all of that? There's a lot about healing that's going on there. There's a lot about your crusade against communism that's going on there. There's a lot of things about a lot of the things that people are concerned about. But where is Jesus in the midst of that? That's what we really ought to be asking. Anyway, I've had my say. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time in your word. And we're thankful that all the roads of scripture brings us to our Lord Jesus. We're thankful that he is our redeemer. We're thankful that he is our covenant king and Lord. We're thankful that he's done all that is needed to bring us to God. And we're thankful that faith brings us to him. And we're thankful that being brought to him, we're brought to all the blessings of Christian salvation. We ask now that you would be with us as an assembly of your people as we gather in the morning hour of worship. We pray that you'd bless us as we look um, to greet one another this morning and have a time of fellowship and and refreshments. Do be with us, we pray, as we come and we ask for these mercies. In Jesus' name, amen.